focus again on uh, the birth of Jesus and the meaning of Jesus and uh, I don't know I haven't I just have a good feeling about this Christmas I don't know why but uh, I just do and I'm I'm thankful for that you know perhaps that's what led me to this text in Isaiah chapter 9 if you don't mind turning there with me in the first seven verses I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 7, Isaiah chapter 9. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. As when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. In Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle, the garments rolled in blood, will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Father, as we turn to this passage of Scripture, I ask for your help. I ask for your leading and your guidance and your blessing. Help us to better understand and appreciate Jesus the great light. Amen. So you might think that that this is kind of a a strange thing to do, to read from verse 1. Why don't I just jump in at verse 6? It's because the, the first few verses introduce this uh, this concept of a great light, and that's what I want to kind of focus on and, and expound the idea of Jesus as a great light and then apply it to our lives in this Christmas. But we don't, have, we don't start off with the great light. We actually start off with gloom. It's, we start off with gloom. That's... That word shows up 
in the first verse, doesn't it? Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her. If you look at verse 22, right at the end of the previous chapter, it speaks about the gloom of anguish. You say, well, that's not a very good start to a sermon, especially not a Christmas sermon. I mean, what are you doing, Paul? Well, the fact is, of course, that Christmas is not always the happiest time of year for some people. Let's acknowledge that. It's a difficult time for some people. And there is a a gloom that can come over. There is a shadow that can come over Christmas for such people. In fact, even without, you know, memories, even without uh, circumstances, we never know what the next day is going to bring. And this world and Satan as its leader would like nothing else than to throw a little bit of gloom into a Christian's Christmas. We are, in our everyday lives, we are confronted with issues inside, issues without, things that we can't control, news that we wish wasn't there, things that trouble us, things that give us anxiety. And although it's nice and the world joins us in trying to switch off those things, the world's remedy is uh, kind of summed up in, uh, you know, Santa Claus is coming to town. The Christian's issues are summed up in a real hope, in a real presence, in a a joy that is not anchored in somebody in a red suit, but a historical figure, an act of God and a coming act of God in a God who is present in our lives, though we may have forgotten that he's there sometimes. The passage actually is not about gloom. It starts with that, but it says, nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her, that is the northern tribes, who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her. Um, The context here, just very quickly, is that uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, they're near the Sea of Galilee in the north of Israel in the area where Jesus was to grow up many years later, many centuries later. But at the time that Isaiah was writing, the Assyrians were there. This is around about 732, year 732. This is when the Assyrians basically made that area in the north of Israel their province. And so there was a reason for gloom The Assyrians were not noted for 
being kind to their enemies. And so, yes, there was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of gloom. And it was, it was brought upon them by the Lord because they had rejected him. And over many centuries, too, this is not just kind of the whim of God. Many prophets have been sent to them to tell them to repent, to tell them to come back to God. But, you know, it's just a fact that the northern kingdoms, uh, after they'd broken away from uh, David and the Davidic rule, not one single king, not one single ruler was a a God-fearing man. And so they'd gone away from God. They had strayed. And you might think, well, God is bringing this disaster upon them and they fully deserve it and God's got nothing more to say to them, nothing more to do with them. It's not true. Because it's still his people. Yes, they have uh, brought this upon their own heads. But God can still speak a a word of hope to them. Because he's gracious. And that word of hope is summed up in the idea of a great light. A great light that shines in that very area of darkness. Now, yes, in the context, it is a hope that's coming. This is Isaiah acting in the role of a soothsayer, a prophet. But at least the people can know that God is still going to rescue their descendants. And that if they will turn and trust with him, even in their dire circumstances, they too will be saved one day. And so there's a reason to rejoice. And God says here, that they should should rejoice. You have, verse 3, multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest. And also, he adds another illustration, they rejoice before you as those who have survived the battle and are, are picking up after the battle. It's over. They've won. And they're burning the sandals and they're burning the... Uh, the uh, clothes and so on of those who oppressed them. It speaks of deliverance. It speaks of relief. It speaks of joy that God is going to bring. And he's going to bring it by bringing into the world this great Light. The people, verse 2, who walked in darkness. It is not pleasant to walk in darkness. It's nice to have the moon up there if you must walk in, uh, in the night time. It's nice to have the moon shining over you so you can see where you're going. In the ancient world, there were no electric lights. There are no lampposts. There's no glow of the city. And so when you walked in darkness, if the moon wasn't out, you're in trouble. How wonderful to have a great light introduced to guide you. Now you see. In fact, now you're in daylight. 
This is the idea. Just as the sun lights up the night and turns it into something different, daytime. This is the idea. This is what the coming of Jesus does. Now, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus applies this to the ministry of Jesus, this very passage. Because when Jesus started preaching, he started preaching salvation for God. He started preaching hope for Israel. It was centered in him. It wasn't far off anymore. He was there. He offered them a shoulder for their burdens. He offered them the relief that they sought. He offered them uh, redemption and reconciliation with their God. He offered them hope. He offered them heaven. He offered them himself as the king. Not all of them took advantage of that, of course. The majority didn't. But the light shone and has been shining. And so there was a reason to rejoice for them. The world languishes in sin now, and only once it has been visited by sin's destroyer, but it has been visited by that destroyer. And you know, if you have trusted in Jesus, that he's done something about sin. And he's done something about the penalty of sin. God no longer looks upon your sin There's a great light come over you and blotted out the darkness, if I can get a little bit poetic, of your heart. It's no longer there because the light shone upon it. Do you see? And God only sees now the light of his Son on your heart and in your life. Yes. And Christmas reminds us if we need to be reminded of that. Well, what about verses 6 and 7? These famous verses. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then it goes on, the government will be upon his shoulder His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. What are we to make of this? Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it. This doesn't sound like a baby. What Isaiah has done and what the prophets often do, and as I've had cause to remind you numerous times, is that it has brought together the ministry of Christ in his first and second comings, and he's forged them together. And I want us to look at that together, because when we look at it together, the light shines brighter. A child is born, verse 6. It says one in the outline, I'm not sure why, but look, it's in verse 6. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And that certainly speaks about the birth of Jesus. And we do celebrate that rightly 
There's nowhere in the Bible that we're told to celebrate it, but I'm not certainly going to be one to say that we oughtn't because the incarnation of the Son of God as a baby in the world is an astonishing thing for God to do. And it's this astonishing humbling of Jesus himself, the Son of God, to to be willing to come into the world in that way. It's just mind-blowing. And God had to protect him. He had to protect him from Herod. He had to protect him during his life as he was growing up. And that child is the great light. If you can see him for who he really is. Because it was concealed. There's only once in Jesus' first coming ministry that he actually gave a glimpse of that light, that glory, as he really had it, as it, he really, um, as it really reflected who he was. And that's at the Mount of Transfiguration. Just for a moment, three of his disciples, that's all, saw his face turn brighter than the sun, his clothes radiate. They saw him for who he was. He always had that glory, even as a baby, but it was concealed, do you see? But it was him, and he has come, and he's come into this world. And his coming into the world is cause for rejoicing. We know that our hope is anchored in what God has already done. In a human being who happened to be the Son of God. And he didn't stay a baby. And he couldn't have stayed a baby. Why? Because look at the prophecy. Look at all of the responsibilities that God has for this child, this son. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. There's the first coming of Christ right there. All the rest of this, this is Jesus when he comes back again. All of this will also be literally fulfilled. This is the brighter light. This is the brighter hope. The government will be upon his shoulder. We speak about shouldering a burden or or shouldering a responsibility, don't we? You have the idea there? The responsibility for the right running of Israel and the right running of this whole world will one day rest upon the shoulders of somebody who actually knows what he's doing. And he really will be able to bring about what our world's leaders cannot through their incompetence and sin. And I would be one of them if I was, if I was uh, put in charge. I'd be just as incompetent. 
But he will bring about what they have struggled and failed to bring about. The best that we can do is to put a bit uh, a bumper sticker on our car which says world peace or something like that. Or put something in our yards which speaks about peace. That's the best we can do, which isn't very much really. When he, this child, this light, when he comes, when he really shines, he's going to do a great deal more than that. We won't need to put peace in this hopeful, wistful way upon our bumpers because it will be here. We'll experience it. He will Make it happen. The government will be upon his shoulder. Well, how do we know he's qualified for the job? His name will be called Wonderful. Not in the way that we throw away that term, everything's wonderful, everything's awesome, and so on in our trivializing way of of, uh, speaking about things. He will truly be a wonder a counselor. He will be wise. When he speaks when, and we listen, we will grow. Mighty God. Well, that's assuring. God, through the Son, is going to reign upon this world. Everlasting Father. Think of the father of a nation. That's the idea. That's the way that the the term father is used there. It's not that he's God the father. It is that he's a father of the nation, the father of the new aeon, the new era, the new age, the new kingdom, the new world. It starts with him. He's the great light, do you see? And my favorite, Prince of Peace. That's just not a throwaway title. He brings peace. How does he bring peace? He brings peace in several ways. First of all, he brings peace between Sinners and God by himself dying on the cross for our sins. Therefore reconciling us to God. There's no other way that that can be done. Your good thoughts, your good intentions, your good deeds, I'm sorry, but without the forgiveness of God that comes through Jesus Christ, none of them are worth anything. As Isaiah himself will say later on in this book, all of our righteousnesses are as, can you finish it off? Filthy rags. rags. Well, filthy rags are not very um, impressive. 
not to us and certainly not to God. You think there are filthy rags in heaven? Well, if all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, all of our good works, all of our what we say is, is our golden heart and, and all of the rest of those plaudits that we uh, throw on ourselves, if all of them are as filthy rags, then you know what? We better give up on trying to impress God with our goodness. And we better turn towards this great light. He makes peace by his cross. And so we must believe that Jesus has died on the cross for us. Not for himself, not for his sins, for our sins. And that when we trust in Jesus to be our sin substitute, that our sins are put on him, his righteousness is put on us, and God clears us. And we are reconciled to God because of what Jesus has done. It's all about what he has done as the peacemaker between God and man. So he brings peace that way. Peace in the sense of reconciliation. But how's, uh, how are things going in the world? How are things going in your life? Like, whoop, down, up, down, up, down. Trying not to read too much bad news, although we know it's there. There's more than enough bad news there. Not much peace going around. We have interludes of peace, don't we? As far as things that happen to us or things that we hear about, just sometimes we get a breath of fresh air. Jesus, as the Prince of Peace, is not reigning now. How do I know? Because of what I've just described. If that's all Prince of Peace means, then that's a big letdown, isn't it? I mean, my balloon is completely empty. Because I, I, I'm left with just trying to, to apply truisms to myself but without little hope that things are going to get better. Jesus will bring true peace, true shalom. He'll bring it to your heart so that you never argue with yourself again. You never argue with anybody else again. He will bring it to the world so that there's no bad news that you wake up to. There's no tornadoes tearing through Kentucky. There's no health upsets with your loved ones. There's no you know, problems that you have to face and you have to grit your teeth and try to get through today. You occupy a world of peace and you understand for the first time what God means by peace. The government of peace, it says, 
in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. That means that when this light fully shines in the world, that will be the time when distress and pain and suffering are seen no more. And I want us to look at that light. I want you to think about that light because he's come and he's coming again. There's one other way that Jesus brings peace and it's kind of between the first and second comings and this has to do with the peace that he brings if you will allow him. Peace I leave with you, he says. My peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Well, why does he say that? Is it just, uh, again, something to make you feel good? Because it does. It kind of lifts you up a little bit. But is there anything behind it? There is. There is. The Bible says, cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. He can take your burdens. It says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And when you really do that, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, it's not something that you can kind of imagine, will keep your hearts and minds. Hearts and minds, oh, that's good. Not just the emotional side of you, but the mental through Christ Jesus. But you've got to cast your cares upon him. You've got to allow him to be in control. You've got to understand that once you've given it to him, don't take it back. And if you've taken it back, then you've got to give it back to him again. Godliness with contentment is great game, and that contentment is possible in this life, in whatever circumstances we may be in. But it's only possible if we understand that we're not walking in darkness, that the light is there. And he's coming. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That's where I want to conclude this morning. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, God himself, will perform this. Do you believe that? Do you believe God is zealous to get this work done? Do you believe that God has some zeal in his very being to change the world? that you're living in, to change your experience of the world. It may be, and in fact, absolutely is, a fact that we have to make our way through this troublesome world. 
But we're strangers and pilgrims and we're on our way somewhere else. Somewhere else that isn't somewhere else. But something that will come upon this world to change it utterly. We speak about uh, that person's got a cloud over them. And when we mean that, we mean that there is something that's come over them, something that they're dealing with, something that they're struggling with that is theirs and um, they alone are kind of going through it. It's good to be able to point them to passages like this. It's good to be able to say that the light has come and the peace of God which will be beyond comprehension in the future is available at least in part to us right now. That peace, even though the cloud might be over your head, that peace can break through. You can know in your circumstances that God loves you. You can know in those circumstances that if you yield to God, he will guide you. You can, those things that are out of your control, you can throw on him and leave it to him. That's what he wants you to do. Cast your burdens upon him. You can know that it, and not feel guilty about the fact that you don't know what to do in this certain situation, but it's okay, he does. So I'm going to just be like a child and I'm going to let him deal with it, and I don't have to know how he's going to deal, deal with it, okay? In, uh, in our Bible study this morning, we went to Matthew chapter 2, and uh, just turn there quickly. I point out this truth. Matthew chapter 2. Verse 13. Now when they, this is uh, the Holy Family, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek to destroy, uh, seek the young child to destroy him. And my question in the class was... Um, why didn't God tell them how long they were going to be down in Egypt? Why didn't he just give them that piece of information? Wouldn't that be easy? I mean, couldn't he just give them that piece of information? Go down to Egypt. You're going to be there for, you know, a few months or a couple of years. Wouldn't that have helped Joseph? But he has to go down into Egypt not knowing when he's going to, be, going to come back again. Why didn't God just tell him? I mean, that would have given him so much assurance, wouldn't it? Just that little smidgen of information. And the application is this. He didn't need to know. He needed to know that God wanted him down there and he should be content until God brings him back. He needed to depend on the fact that God was in control. 
You don't need to know how God's going to help you in your gloom, in your circumstances, in your troubles. All you need to know is that the light's there. Don't you? So dismiss those things that try and grab you back into the darkness and look at the fact that the light has shined. This Christmas, look at the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, has come. He has died for your sins. If you have trusted in him, then you're okay. You're God's child and he loves his children. And peace in the, in the greatest and most emphatic sense of that word is in front of you. So you can, you and I, we can handle a few more years, especially knowing that if we just yield our worries and our anxieties to God and we cast them upon him, we can have that peace in our circumstances today. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this shows us, the passage of this shows us that you are zealous to bring about your kingdom and you are zealous for us to share in it. I pray, Heavenly Father, that if there is anyone here who has not trusted in Jesus as their Savior, who died for them so that they wouldn't face you in their sin, I pray that they would trust in Jesus today. And I pray that they would get that first um, aspect of peace dealt with, the reconciliation with you. And I pray peace, that peace, Lord, that you give upon every struggling heart. I pray that we would learn again to depend on you, not trying to figure everything out, but just give it to you and move along with what we can do. I pray that kind of peace upon us all. And then I pray, even so, come Lord Jesus, because our zeal needs to connect with your zeal to bring that to pass. We know that that's what we're supposed to pray, and so we pray it, and we pray that it will not be long before we enter the kingdom of peace. In the name of the Prince of Peace. Amen.